Gautier. Does that mean it's okay that I'm having a beer right now? Is that all right? Oh, That's God. absolutely fine. In three, two, one, and... Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. And we have one of our truly esteemed guests on today... Um, Aaron, would you would you like to introduce the Antipodean legend? Oh, no pressure then. Um, I really don't know what to say. I, I'm a reasonably articulate chap, but actually describing this man's achievements is is pretty is pretty difficult. And his standing in the sport of rowing is it's uh, we are literally as Loon and I would, would will often say, we stand on the toes of midgets and we, we we look up to the faces of giants and we actually have a genuine giant with us. We have Drew Jin, Australian legend, with us, a man that Andrew Triggs Hodge described as the Australian Steve Redgrave and racing against him was the thing that caused his knees to knock the most. Uh, Drew is joining us from Australia. It's taken a while for us to track him down. We finally got him in a corner where he can't escape from and he's very graciously agreed to come on and have a chat with us. Drew, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. And I'm not sure what you've rigged up here, but as soon as I walked in the room, the door locked and uh, I can't actually get out <laughs> until you let me out. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 Bluetooth. <laughs> so, Drew, obviously, one of the world's kind of most successful Olympic rowers. We always try and sort of put a kind of little bit of background in that. Who you are outside of the sport, and you know who you are now. Almost, I mean, what, for instance, what's your current masters category? Oh, look, I'm almost in the over 50s category, which I'm getting very excited about. Uh, I'm 47 years of age. And I suppose to give you a bit of context, um, yeah, I'm still I, I'm still as active as ever um, and always looking for things to do as adventures. And um, I've loved my bike riding ever since I was a young little kid. And while I'm not getting out rowing specifically, I just still do jump on the erg every now and then and uh, have a bit of fun just testing myself behind the scenes. And um, and I've been into ocean ski paddling recently, and I just love doing that out on the ocean down here near the farm. We're two hours out of Melbourne, and um, and on the on the bay in Melbourne as well. So highly active as a forty seven year old. Um, also doing a lot of work right now around um, either reviewing strategy or performances for some of the sports. Um, did the review for Athletics Australia post Tokyo, which was really interesting to do. Um, and really enjoyed that, getting a lot of insights into what the athletes and coaches described about their experiences. Um, before that was doing the Cricket Australia work and then the Cricket Tasmania work, which was a high performance manager in, in, in those two organisations. And that was sort of five, five almost five years. Um, moved my family down to Tasmania for that opportunity. And bizarrely, I mean, I, I grew up, you know, you guys would be the same. Like cricket is a massive sport in Australia but I didn't really play it myself apart from backyard cricket. So I didn't really understand the nuances of it all. And probably largely, you know, would get pretty frustrated because I'm, I'm an energetic, I was an energetic kid. So standing out in the field all day would have just bored me senseless sort of thing. So uh, yeah, and, and, and I probably wouldn't have caught particularly well. Um, so, uh, so for me going into a sport, I didn't really know much about apart from the on TV heroics um, was a really nice test for sort of four and a half years to see about the transferable skills and knowledge and principles. And so there were some really good learnings out of that and some great opportunities. And then probably go right back to the start of the rowing uh, context, I suppose. Um, I was a young kid who you know, grew up in South Gippsland down here, was sent to boarding school for four years, last two years of school. Uh, maths teacher grabbed me and put me in a boat for the first time. And uh, my first experience was swimming. 
uh, I was a good swimmer and then I did a bit more swimming that first session in rowing yeah. as well and uh, was challenged by that. So I then had a really quick trajectory up through the different school levels um, to the final year in 92, you know, rowing in the first crew there at Scotch College and um, and then was really fortunate. I think this is probably what I give people in terms of context is I've had some of the best coaches on the planet, right? So I had James Tompkins and a, and a school teacher at the time, Laurie Malcolm, who I still regard as being an exceptional rowing coach. Paul McGann as well was there. So they were our school coaches. James Tompkins was your yeah. school coach. Okay, that's, yep, so that's was, not bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so to put it in, and this is the thing about the context of it all is, I was exposed to him and the awesome foursome in their lead up to 92 Olympic Games yeah. as the young student who had only just started in the sport. So that was really impressionable. Um, I was a keen learner, so I just took in everything I possibly could about what he said, but also how they did it. And then uh, and then sort of continued on. And Noel Donaldson, I think I have to give a lot of credit to giving a bit of context here, is that two years later, he was coaching Australian under 23 eight that I managed to scrape into and uh, and and got to go overseas with and so to have the awesome foursome coach coaching me within one or two years of leaving school really set up the opportunity in two more years not to necessarily be the athlete that was just going to walk into the four if there was um, a replacement or an opportunity but I just felt like I had the best grounding to actually you know put my hand up and have a have a real go at it sort of thing and so and and the rest of the history is interesting I mean obviously I've been to the games Four times I've missed out on the home Olympic Games, which was bloody hard to sit on the sidelines. But um, I just count myself really lucky that I've managed to get some results and you know, row with some amazing partners as well. If you've listened to the podcast and if you haven't, Drew, we don't blame you. We have one listener who basically clicks, you know, refresh a couple of hundred times. That That's the reason that we never made it, Lewin, as rowers. Just, you know, it's, it's not just the it's not just the erg scores. I mean. Drew had James Tompkins and the awesome foursome as his basically mentors. I had Dennis O'Neill and an irascible. I had Scott. Nigel from Norwich. That's the difference. I'm saying nothing about Dennis. He was a fine coach and he has my address. He knows where I live. Being serious, Drew, and this is just to kind of wind back and unpick a little bit of what you said. When we had uh, Eric on, and uh, obviously, you know, I'm pretending that we're on first name terms, but he doesn't know who we are really. And we had Axel Dickinson on, who was also a member of the New Zealand squad and went on to coach Hinksy. He talked a lot about the Australian culture and the Antipodean culture of being a very outdoor culture. And you don't just do one sport where here you get children who identify as footballers or gymnasts or swimmers very early. You're encouraged to do a lot of sports. And that seems to feed into um, the entire sporting culture going all the way up to elite and high performance level. So could you talk a little bit about perceived differences of the Australian, you know, general sporting culture and then how that fed into your transition? Yeah, I think I don't know enough about the pathway in, in both New Zealand and the, in the UK, but um, certainly what I experienced was it was valued if you were an all-round athlete. And in fact, while it was not only valued, it was also an advantage because cross-training became such a big part of what we did, particularly from the four. Um, they were already into their windsurfing and bike riding and all that sort of stuff. And so what was seen as a, a really good template for everyone, which was actually you can you can be serious about your rowing, but you can actually keep up these skills and do these other activities, which for me as a young kid, I mean, I just, I, I surfed. I, I rode BMX bikes. So I did a bit of track cycling. I did a fair bit of running as a kid as well. Did a lot of swimming. Um, 
And so having an interest in sports generally meant that you were encouraged to continue to explore that. So when I finally came to rowing, what I noticed was um, rowing was probably one of the ultimate sports that actually still um, enabled cross-training to be a part of its training methodology in Australia. Um, and I now know that, you know, over the last few years in particular, obviously Australians have moved towards trying to duplicate some of what's happened in New Zealand and in, in the GB system as well. But I think a lot of our athletes historically benefited a lot from having that real balance to what they did. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is I probably do get a little bit concerned about burnout rates of athletes and all that sort of stuff, which is there's not a freshening up process. And if they do step away, it's very hard to re-engage in the system. And so, yeah, I, I like to think the reason why Mike Mackay got to 41 years of age in Athens and, and why James Tompkins, you know, continued on, um, into into Beijing as a you know 43 year old or whatever it was you know and and myself 37 yeah I think the longevity um, was achieved because of the balance we had with what we we're doing and, and the balance wasn't just the multiple sports the balance also was having um, study or work progressing along the same sort of path and I do remember hearing some of the GB athletes you know the Seal brothers and all that sort of stuff where they'd studied and they started dabbling in a bit of work yeah, and I actually think that made him athletes, particularly for yeah, Greg. Like you think about how long he lasted in the sport. Yeah, you know, he couldn't have done that, I don't think, unless he had other things in his life. So things. So I think there's there's many ways to do it, but I certainly think there's been an advantage, certainly for me as a young athlete, but certainly for a lot of the Australian athletes that came through the '90s and through the early 2000s was um, was that multi-sport aspect was really strong, and it's actually you know I think it paid dividends. It may not have always got the very best rowing result, but I do think it kept the athletes in the sport longer. You, you mentioned Scotch College. That, 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 was, that was your school. That was where you learned to row. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. So I've, 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 got to, I've got to ask about this. The mullets, the permed mullets. Ah. <laughs> what well, is the story behind that? Well, I, I think it's I think it's young students expressing themselves, to be honest, right? Oh, yeah. so, and I think the reality the reality is they're trying to have fun with what they do in a very serious rowing program that's dominated the Victorian rowing scene in particular for schools. I'll go back a few steps for you. In 1992, we won the head of the river after a 14-year, what they call drought. Okay. And so for that crew to finally succeed but we were wearing all different hats and some kids had long hair, some kids had short hair and all that sort of stuff. So I'm not saying that that influenced the current generation, but certainly I think there's an element of some of the schools do do things very seriously. And I, and I think that limited bit of expression is what you see from the Scotch kids. And certainly we did in our time. What's been amazing is they've dominated now for, you know, 20 odd years almost I think So, and, and we've seen the crews that have come over to Henley and, you know, perform you know, really well. Um, yeah, it's just been amazing to, to watch what Tom Woodruff and a guy called Jeff Watt was doing before that. And I was actually coaching there in 2001, two and three, um, right when they first started having all that success. And it's just amazing to sort of see a school dominate like that. So the mullets, they're, they're, they're cool. They won't look at their photos in 20 years and go, that was cool. But right now they, they're cool. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It, to be honest, it's actually really nice to see what just seems like quite an organic and like you said it's fun it's ex it's a sense of i suppose it's team bonding and crew expression isn't it they're they're just having it's, it's an exp it's an expression i think it's 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 as you both know i'm sure rowing is there's parameters like you have to follow each other you have to match up with each other you have to wear the same uniforms all this sort of stuff. so if your hair or something else is something that you can actually do to be a little bit unique that's just the, the expression piece the other yep. one is 
Australian rules football right now, there's a big fad where you see a lot of the players with long mullets and we've had the beard, beards and now we've got the moustaches and all this sort of stuff. So it's almost like they're, they're going back to the 70s. Um, and I love that. You know, I was born in the 70s. I wish I had been a bit older going through the 70s, but it's, it, it is that expression. But it also, I think, is a bit of a, a nod to the past to say, you know, we respect what they were doing, even though it may not have looked so cool at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think we had... Um... In the 80s, Lewin won't know this because he's he's from the south where football isn't isn't really a thing, he said with his tongue very, very firmly in his cheek. But we, we had a whole generation of footballers who had the, the bubble perm mullets like Kevin Keegan and and and, and Chris Waddle and, and that kind of thing. And um speaking as as I mean Lewin and I are both in our 40s, speaking as men who 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 both still just about have most of our hair, I, I think if you've got it, you should try everything on the menu because because once it's gone, it's gone and you can't you can't wind it back. You've got to be young and daft when you're still young and daft. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the benefit with the mullet is if you do lose it off top and you've got the mullet, you can do the comb over, right? So you can, you've got to yeah. there as well. You can flick it forward. <laughs> so um, you've obviously worked with the Australian Institute of Sport, both in a rowing capacity, and you've just mentioned that you've been doing some of the post-Tokyo reviews, which I'm sure we'll get into because Loon and I are still picking over the bones of um, of British rowing's Tokyo performances, um, privately and, and also on the pod. So at the time... British rowing was was quite ad hoc. It was still based in a lot of the things that have happened in in the past. And I think Loon will back me up. We we remember the the AIS being held up as this this model of this is how you get on in in in, in terms of elite sport. When you got into it, what did you find there? You've mentioned the cross training element, which I think is so important to avoid burnout. Because if you're doing twenty hours a week on the erg, you're going to get sick of it at some point, unless you're a very particular personality type. So what did you find when you when you got into it? Yeah, I think, um, so I went there late 1994 and um, I got an opportunity with a guy called Ben Dodwell who I rode with at Merck stand here briefly when he came back from the World Championships. Very good senior rower. Um, was actually in the four in Sydney. Um, and we trialled through the Australian process, got our invites to go up um, and join the group. I think it was, um, it was maybe December 94, um, the Canberra squad, most of it was already established, but there was new invites, new scholarships coming in, and I was part of that sort of group that came in. Um, the biggest thing I noticed was just resources. The very first thing they had was they had resources and they had a lot of extra people, a lot of extra hands on deck with expertise. Um, the other part that was really obvious was facilities. You know, So if you sort of think about the training facilities at, at Belconnen, which is... Um, all the residential sort of piece, plus also the sports science and the pool and all the labs and all that sort of stuff. And the rowing centre, while it was small at the time and it's become bigger now and we've got the two centres, um, I think the Australian government being able to go through the Sports Commission and then go to the AOS and go, right, here's the funding and this is what we want you to achieve made a, a massive difference. I think it was 1988 it got kicked off. Um, so my experience as a young kid, I suppose, going in was, wow, there's a jump in volume here there's a jump in uh, intensity because you're a part of the squad the whole time ryan holbachi was the head coach there at the time and he had a very uncompromising approach you know it was uh, simple things like six o'clock is when you're supposed to be on the on the mat doing warm-up and everyone sort of said but there's barchi time so be on the mat at 5 45 um, because if you're on the mat at six he sees you as being late right so so as a young athlete, you start to sort of get indoctrinated into just a few different things that are about different standards. And it didn't mean that at my club, there hadn't been great standards and the four had trained out of Mercs with, with Noel before, but it was a squad mentality. There was a, a sense of agreement, which is 
you're on scholarship now, you're, you're part of this new community and you're expected to perform. Um, but we were given everything, you know, and I don't say everything over the top, but just all the resources were there, sports scientists were there, um, lots of education. So I found that I was there for 12 months. I don't know that I would have enjoyed being there for much more than another one year or two years, but certainly for me personally, that 12 months was really helpful to go, I'm now in the squad, I was at the back of the squad, I worked my way through competing against a lot of the athletes, I got great support, I got tested lots. I learned to train harder. Um, I learned to have a coach who probably expected more of me than I expected of myself. And that was a really challenging sort of thing to go through as a young athlete. And, and Reinhold sort of said after 96 and we had success was, yeah, he was hard on me because he could see potential, right? So that's hard as an athlete when you're going through the time, but having a coach go, these are the standards, it's uncompromising is actually really helpful. Um, probably my only reflection on the AOS is that I think when UK sport came out to do a lot of visits, and understand what we were doing in Australia. And Australia opened the doors to a lot of countries to show them what we were doing. I think UK sport saw that what we were presenting was facilities and you know, quality people, quality sports scientists, quality coaches. We were proud of the facilities as a country. But I think what UK sport identified was, yeah, facilities are okay. We need facilities, but we actually need the quality people. And I think that's where the recruiting process really took off for 2000 and beyond. Um, and so for me, I don't think as Australia, as a sporting institute, we really appreciate how good our coaches were in the sport of rowing, but in a lot of sports like cycling and all that sort of stuff. So, so while we had everything, I don't necessarily think we have fully appreciated the parts that were really making the biggest difference to things. So, um, but it was an eye opener, um, really helpful. I saw some athletes who were there for probably three, three Olympic cycles and, and, and they got great results out of it. And it was a great environment for them, but it just probably wouldn't have been the environment I would have wanted to stay in. Um, for much longer than one one year, two years, um, but it served really well at that time. I've heard you say that kind of the Australian system now for rowing is looking at a kind of three Olympic cycle from entry for a young athlete to gold for for a senior athlete. Is that is that something that's become longer now? than let's say it was in the early 90s is rowing is international rowing a more competitive place and a more difficult place to get a gold medal yeah i think what i would say is um and i'm respectful of everything that's gone on in world rowing so that's that's not a question and, and it's only one individual making a comment here i think it is more competitive across the board but not because you've got 10 countries who are vying for positions, but I do think we've had a couple of countries really dominate the sport. Yep. And if you're not a part of that country's program, one, you've got to get into that program, you've got to get through that program. Um, if you're in New Zealand and you get through on the national team, there's a good chance you're going to get a medal, right? And GB has been the same. Um, we haven't quite had that cut through, but we've, we've been pretty good at our top tier of athletes who get on the team generally will medal. So when you look at, those three nations and you add Canada, Germany, you know, you, you, the list goes on, right? US and all that sort of stuff. For me, it is highly competitive. I think more competitive now, but I don't necessarily think it's significantly faster than ever before, but I just think there's more people pushing up against the ceiling. And, and I yeah. think everyone's learning from the examples that they see in the past, right? So everyone learned from Norway in the 60s and 70s, you know, and, and then everyone learned from Germany from the 60s, 70s and 80s in particular. Um, I think people then started putting their eyes to Australia through the through the 90s period and early 2000s. Jürgen and that whole GB sort of squad and community 
people have looked at that now for a long, long time and gone, okay, what is it that they're doing really well? And we all know about the New Zealand run that they've had, particularly when Dick Tonks was there leading it with a lot of small boats. So I think now there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of information, people sort of know a lot more about the training standards that are required. So I think it's more competitive, but I'm just not sure that we're going significantly faster for all the money, all the spend, all the athletes, to be, to be fair. Like I don't see the, the standards jumping forward significantly. Um, and world best times are hard to hard to knock off and all that sort of stuff. But I would have thought with all that up, upwards pressure on on those performances that you would have seen things jump forward even further in the sport in the last 10 years. Is, is, that, is that just part of the way that almost the races happen? You, you, you kind of, it, it's rare that you have, I don't know. Okay, so from my point of view, I'm, I'm not an expert on what happens in the boat in an Olympic final. Um, but it seems as though you don't necessarily have, in most cases, flat out time trials. You have, there is an element of tactical, once you get ahead, you tend not to just keep going ahead, but you're like, right, we're ahead now. So, so there's, there's a comparative thing rather than we're, we're just going to sort of like, you know, let's say in a, a cycling time trial where well, the only option you have is to go as fast as possible and watch the watts and like, can I get like, can I go from 420 to 422 and just try and get that extra 10th of a second? Is, is it possible that that's one of the things that isn't making the times go faster is that you win a race over 300 meters, not over 2000 meters? Yeah, probably I'll add a bit of context to that there. I think yes is the answer to that. I think generally if you look at Olympic Games finals, almost always it comes down to minimal number of crews really having a crack at gold. You've got six crews. I don't think six crews are legitimately having a crack at gold. Sure. And now I've watched enough races where you look and go, I'm pretty certain those crews have decided that a bronze medal is their best opportunity. They've, they've, they've held off chasing after it early and as a result they've come through and picked up a fourth or a third place and sometimes even a silver place it's rare that they pick up the gold from that position so that's a risk adverse sort of mindset and but it's a it's a smart mindset as well which is hey look we're not going to challenge new zealand for gold but someone will in the pair you know like we, we yep. always saw someone having a crack at trying to beat them but generally you've got crews in the field i reckon sitting there going hey look we don't think we can beat new zealand we probably can't necessarily beat the second crew but bloody hell, if we nail it today, we reckon we can get bronze, right? So you're not racing the whole field when you've got that mentality about the Olympic Games. It's different when you go to a World Cup and people are telling, taking a risk, right? Um, so that's not the only one. I think the other ones are training methodologies as such. Now we've gone down such a physicality of the sport where it's almost like you can't do much more volume, to be honest. Like you can't, what New Zealand have done, GB's done, what Australia's recently done. 200 plus Ks a week on average for most of the year and all that sort of stuff. You just, you can't physically do much more than that. So that, that's got us operating at such a level that everyone sort of goes, well, we'll copy that. And then people start to find that they're now in the race with those crews, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you go faster than 608 in the pair or faster than 559 in the double skull, right? And they're just two references. But I think the crews that set those times were racing the way you described, which is they were racing full foot on the gas all the way down the track, which is the most efficient way to do it. And Hamish and Eric, what I loved about their style was they didn't try to blast away in the first five and 
dominate everyone, but they set up the first five so they would go the same speed all the way down the track, if not go slightly faster. Now that's the most efficient way of rowing a race, but in a lot of boat races, what I sort of see is that mentality of I don't want to get behind. If I get behind, it's so much work to do later on. So everyone then chases to get to the 500 meter mark in, in, in the hunt. And if they lose a bit of margin, they panic a little bit or they go into their shells or whatever it is. So I think there's some natural dynamics that happen there in human group nature sort of sort of dynamics that, that work out. Um, but the other part for me too is we've got equipment that is standardised. But if you really look at the blade technology, if you really look at the equipment technology and you look at the gearing and all that sort of stuff, there's not a lot of innovation going on in our sport. Now, it's governed by the sport to a degree in terms of the rules and regulations, but I don't see people trying to rig their boats to go significantly faster. So everyone's assumed that this is about the rig. Everyone's assumed that this is now the training you have to do. Um, so it's going to take some crazy thinkers to come along in some of these sports um, disciplines inside rowing to go, how do we go sub six minutes in a pair? Yeah, so that's been my curiosity for a long, long time. And I, I always thought that a pair could go that speed. New Zealand, I reckon, if they had have um, continued to evolve and stay in the game, yeah, we'd certainly have really got close to it. So it's only a matter of time until it does happen. But someone's going to have to innovate massively, which is a risk, right? So, um, so for me, I think, yeah, there's more people on the line, but there's not the line going further forward, I don't think. Yeah, it is. I think there's a sorry, Lynn, can I just dive in there? Okay, and, and, then, and then you can obviously shoot me down if you feel like it. But um, there's there's quite a lot to unpick there, Drew. And I, I think um, what I'm taking away from it is very open about their, their, their training and their institute in the 90s, which we obviously borrowed very, very heavily from in setting up our approach. And then other countries. Are, so that kind of transparency means that what it's kind of leveled the playing field in in a way, yep. because everyone, even though Loon and I have complained that, you know, British rowing isn't particularly transparent about its training or, or the times that people are posting or what we're doing, we all roughly know what each international program is doing because it's a high volume approach because that's what's worked in the past. Yep. We had a, a coach on from Leander called Jez Moore who, who said, look, the, the reality is you can't, we've pulled the volume lever as far as we can you can't keep loading the human body in the way that we are because you're going to see more and more injuries. The next levers to be pulled are the technical levers and the psychological levers, um, which is something you've alluded to. And when we talked to Eric about this, and you, you, made, you just made a really interesting point, they weren't bothered about being behind at 500, whereas most yeah you know even at club level if you're behind it's oh god we're behind there's there's so it's really it's really hard to learn how to row through someone to have that confidence and they really had that confidence so they had the psychological thing and also he did an, an, an interview with uh, martin cross which is really illuminating where he was talking about the way their pair was rigged is not the way that anybody else would rig their pair he was talking about going to the Olympics with an old M-packer because they wanted the flex in the shell about the way that they, the way that his pitch and his angles were set compared to Hamish's. And Loon and I have talked a lot about the standardization of the profile in Britain means you can drop a unit in and out of a boat, but it's, and it works in terms of an overall squad, but it doesn't give you the great leap forward that you're talking about in experimenting with those things. Yeah. And I think what, what I've seen there is, um, so if you have GB Sport in rowing doing what they've been doing and New Zealand doing what they've been doing, and, and generally majority of their crews have one or two coaches influencing them and boom, they're pushing forward. So that, that puts them ahead of the 
um, the competition because they're willing to do things that not everyone's willing to do or people hear stories and then sort of just assume that, oh, that's maybe made up or whatever it is. But Olaf Tufti described in his single scale going to altitude um, and rowing ridiculous Ks, like the volume he was doing in the lead up to Athens and then Beijing and all that sort of stuff was just extraordinary. Now, when someone hears this, they've got a choice, right? They've either got a choice to say, hey, look, I'll go and have a crack at doing that or I won't. <laughs> um, but if Tufti was doing it and then Mahe was also through Dick later on doing that sort of stuff, um, if you're not doing that, then you're not even in the game. So you might get an edge on them in the first 250 or 300 metres or whatever it is, but they just grind you down. So, so I think the individualisation for me is a massive opportunity in the sport. So Hamish and Eric have shown the world that they individualised and everyone describes it from out the side, outside is you wouldn't pick them as the ideal pair, right? But they made it work and they made it work so damn effectively, right? And, and they did all these little things to make it work. So Duncan Free and I, I mean, Duncan was 100 plus kilograms and I'm 85 kilograms. So we cut out the decks in our boat and moved us 20 centimetres towards the bow, right? So, and we moved okay. five centimetres and it didn't make hardly any difference to the trim of the boat. We then moved another 10 centimetres and we had to cut the deck out and move the foot stretcher and re-drill holes and all that sort of stuff. And we just kept moving ourselves and eventually it was 20 centimetres. Now, the reason why I remember that story is because Dunks and I were at the Nationals and talking about it on Sunday. Um, and the thing for me was we were looking for efficiencies in the boat to get the trim just right for racing, not the trim right for paddling. So we would have our bow ball touching as we were paddling along. And then as soon as we went to 34, 35 strokes a minute, the boat was in perfect trim. Now we looked across the whole Olympic field and the only other crew in 2008 that had their trim right were the Canadians. And they had Dave Calder sitting in the bow with Scott Franz in the stroke seat. So Dave was a much bigger, heavier athlete and Scott was much lighter. So their boat naturally trimmed that way, but every other pair wasn't rigged to go fast. So, so for me, when I look at that sort of stuff, Hamish and Eric innovated, tweaked, individualized. Dunks and I did exactly the same thing, but yeah, you're right. Like a lot of systems go, we, we homogenize, we do exactly the same thing. We swap people out. Everyone's the same. Like the worst thing I've seen is squad training of say 12 athletes rotating through pairs, all doing the same training program, all working off each other and expecting it at the end of three to four years that somehow um, they're all, they're all going to be flying, but they don't like, cause they all just hierarchies form and the best athletes become the best athletes and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, so there's, there's opportunity I reckon is, is what I'm saying there. Again, this is, this is something, I mean, justice confidence, is really something that I sort of picked up from Eric Murray as well is a very very kind of analytical and imaginative approach to performance rowing I mean that that thing that you said that's okay the idea that you're like right let's get the let's get the Dremel multi out and let's like hack a bit of carbon fiber out that that I'm, I, I, I literally had shivers at the idea that anybody would let me anywhere near a boat with a with a soaring implement of any sort um it was uh, fun <laughs> i mean did, did you did you tell people the i mean presumably this wasn't your personal boat this was this was australia's boat i mean did you like no, say, no, so guys, we yeah, we were fortunate. We were getting boats from Sykes down in Geelong. And so James and I went through the experience in 2004. We had three boats, um, two back in Australia until the second one went. We left one over in Europe. So with Dunks and I, we did the same thing. We had three boats set up. And 
because we're always looking for things, we even, we rode a Hudson, we rode an MPAC, we rode a Felipe, we went and trialled all these boats to go, is there something in these, these craft that would make us faster? The ultimate thing we came to was there's not a lot between the hulls, right? Yeah. But what we did come to was there's some different things about positions and all that sort of stuff and some ways of advantages, disadvantages of each hull. And I was like, right, how do we open our minds to doing something different? So when we did it with that boat, the manufacturer didn't know, no one knew. Chris O'Brien was standing there and we're, we're obsessing over this idea of getting the trim right. And he goes, all right, here we go. Dunks had the tools out. You know, we're cutting into it. And we did a bloody good job. And then we rang Sykes and said, this is what we've done. And they've gone, you've moved what? And they're like, yep, we've done this. But, but what they realised also was they wanted to give us the very best boat. So once we'd moved and shown that we thought it was better and faster, um, and if you watch the Beijing Olympic Games, you watch it, the trim of that boat that we're in, and it's just spot on, right? And, yeah. and it's not just the way we're rowing. It's actually with the way we've set ourselves up. Now, if that adds a canvas or if that adds half a length or even if it adds a foot, like that's, that's the advantage you've got to get through your equipment, not just you physically training. So... But we, um, Jeff, Jeff Lawrence was the owner at the time and I remember you know, speaking to him and going, we've done this. He goes, so we now need to make another boat. It's like, yep, but we want this movement to be done with the boat. So then there's nothing for us to do, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, yeah. um, which, which was great having a boat builder down the, down the road in Geelong. They were fantastic at supporting the things we wanted to try. Yeah, I've got to leap in, Lou, and before we go a- a- any further, and I, I've, been, I've been laughed at for this. I mean, first of all, I've worked with boatmen who've gone, you're what? You're taking the boat out? But I've, it's perfect. Don't touch it. You know, it's kind of, well, it's it's supposed, you're supposed to ruin it. I know, but I've just spent ages setting it up. So it's that, that whole, you know, I'm going to take a hacksaw to your boat. It's like, you'd be shot even walking towards the boat sheds. And the second thing is, and this is, this is something that I've felt for a long time. I think one of the best analogies with rowing is music and being a musician because it's all about it's about working together it's about synchronicity it's about rhythm it's about all of the and when it happens when everything clicks it's i think it's analogous to play music in a really good band because it feels it feels effortless and and what you're talking about there messing around with the boat it, it is like someone with an instrument going well these strings aren't working so i'm taking those off and it's like eddie van halen he couldn't find a guitar that would do what he wanted to do so he took a neck from here and a body from here and a pickup from another thing and a tremolo from here and a nut from here and slapped it all together and it it made it work for him and that kind of flexibility um i think that's fantastic I was just going to say, add to that, right? This is this is what we talked about. So you're exactly right. So if you think about a musical instrument, you want to get it tuned up just right. Yeah. That also might mean that that particular musical instrument doesn't get played a whole lot. Yeah. Because you've got it tuned up just right. You know how to tune it, lots of stuff. So you're not playing it every single day. You're playing it for those special occasions or in preparation for those special occasions. Give you a sense of boat, and this is where I think the really interesting about the sport is we always wanted to go sub six ten in the pair. So what we did with our gearing and our setup and all that sort of stuff was for a boat to go 610 in the pair. Um, we didn't set ourselves up and have a boat to just paddle around at seven and a half minutes at rate 20. So, so when some people would watch our paddling and people would describe it as rhythmical and all that sort of stuff, there were some things about that. You go, look, if we really wanted to go faster paddling, we'd make these changes to make the paddling better and, and we make these setup changes to make the boat feel more comfortable at rate 20. Um, but we're riding around in a fixed gear boat, basically. If you think about the cycling analogy, yeah. do you want a fixed gear that's going to allow you to go 55k an hour average or do you want one that's going to allow you to go 35k an hour average? So, so choosing 
longer oars or a tighter gearing or setting yourself up in different positions in the boat or trimming the boat in a certain way didn't mean it was making us paddle faster or better or look better but it certainly gave us the advantage of having that really tuned up feel for 34 35 36 strokes a minute so there was a sweet spot of this is what we're trying to get just right and when we we take it to race pace that's where we should feel the benefit of that tuning you know yeah, it's it's the difference between your sofa guitar, which you you know, which you'll mess around on when when the kids are are screaming and bouncing around watching the TV, and the guitar that you take to your studio session or for your recording gig. Yep, yep. Did um, I mean so we're really getting down into the weeds here? I mean, did that mean that <laughs> you, you you guys in the pair when you were training, sort of like you know, we all know like the dominant training philosophy that's been around for close to 25 years now which is lots of low intensity and then that kind of peak sharpening um kind of one out of every five sessions did that mean that if if you sort of like set the boat up to row at 34 to 36 you kind of like drifted up there on every other training session just because that was where it felt best or I mean, what, what, what did you maintain that discipline? It's like, no, we're going out for a paddle. We're going to watch the heart rate. Well, we never really watched the heart rate. That's probably the first part, but we did watch boat speed. And so what we were, our philosophy was maximize boat speed at rate, say 19, 20, um, and learn to do it over K after K after K. So it's not, we've come down and done a great 1K and got these splits. And yet if we rode for another 10Ks, it'd fade out 10 seconds. So, so we had a few indicators for ourselves, which was if we could row 20Ks, in the pair at say 155, sub 155 at rate 19, 20, we felt like we were physiologically in the right sort of space. And if you're rowing 20 Ks, you're going up and back. So you're neutralizing a lot of the weather factor conditions, but you do need warm wish water to make that work for you. Yep. The other one for us was in the benchmark around, if we had a 2K measure, say in Varese, where we'd swing onto the course and come down and really serve it up for the last uh, 2K at rate 20, um, we started out sort of measuring ourselves and going, right, how do we just get that faster and faster? Now, sometimes we'd muscle it along and just sort of see where we could get it just by a bit of brute force. And other times we'd try to make it more efficient, but ultimately our benchmark became, you know, could we get under 145 splits per 500? And that's that's flying at rate 20, right? So, yeah. Yeah. but I'm, I'm not saying these markers are for everyone. These were just what we found for us. So what our philosophy was, was threshold. So, you know, if I had my time again, we'd consider to look at other sort of things and all that sort of stuff. So we did volume, but we didn't do just massive amounts of volume like everyone's doing, but we got volume on the bike. So if we were doing a 200K to 300K week of volume on the bike, we were doing another 140Ks or so on the water of rowing. Um, but we also spent a lot of time apart. So we needed to train on the ergo, in the skull, in, in, in other boats when we could. But if I was to sort of say the one thing that we did focus on a lot was threshold, was how could we move our 90, 92, 93% capacity, how can we move that along? You know, so at rate 30, could we get faster and faster and faster? So we wouldn't let ourselves drift up to race pace very often, but we always did have the race mentality of if we're at 20, how, how fast can we drive rate 20? If we're at yep. 28, how fast can we drive rate 28? So, so rather than letting rate be the determining factor, rate was just the outcome. It was always boat speed and what we regarded as being our best boat speed benchmarks. I, I mean, some, something I'm, I'm sort of really fascinated by that I, I had no idea about was your time with like uh, Tasmanian cricket. <laughs> how, how, it's, because I mean, it, it, it is, it, it's just two almost completely different sports. 
you know, you've got the ball sport, which is like, it's not, it's not famous for being the most active of ball sports. And then you've got this incredibly intense racing sport. I mean, okay, I'm sure you could write a book on it, but how did what you'd learn and this kind of like analytical kind of experimental attitude from rowing feed into that? What were the transferable skills? Well, the first transferable skill, if I was to put it in perspective, is um, me being a willing learner, right? So, so all through my time in rowing, I was always interested in learning, sometimes resistant to feedback, <laughs> like we were all like that. Yeah. But I was always had a deep down curiosity as to how do I get better? How do I get faster? How do I make the boat better? How does my partner get better? You know, what are we doing with equipment? So the Cricket Tasmania experience was very much going in and going, how do I learn about the sport that I don't know a lot about? So for me, that, 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 that mentality was really key. The other part was then looking for where the opportunities are that I could see obvious alignment that I might be able to have a conversation with and feel more confident in. Um, so typically sports science area and how they were training their athletes to get ready for you know, a day's performance or a competition or whatever it might be. So I'd start asking questions like, okay, what are you doing to get ready for the, the heat acclimation? What are you doing to deal with the cold situation? Um, what are you doing to help a batter who might have to be out there all day or a day and a half in four-day cricket? You know, that sort of stuff of what are we doing to help them get there? How do we measure that? So for me, firstly, was my interest in learning. Um, then the second part was trying to find just key things that I could connect to. So one of the conversations I started having with the head coach down there, which I really enjoyed, was about... He was a fast bowling coach in particular and he's a head coach. And um, there's a lot of hand signals and gestures being made about this sort of stuff because cricket, like rowing, uses their hands a lot. And so I just kept asking him questions. And eventually one day I was like, yeah, this is so similar to how we prepare the rowers. Yeah. And I said, but it's, it's interesting that you're using high intensity balls as your measure where we would use base training as our measure. But you're trying to do the same thing. You're trying to load the body over weeks and months and months and months and years to then get them ready to be able to deal with eventually test cricket yep. in that format or the velocities that they require and the um, foot force at the crease they deal with um, when they're doing, you know, particularly fast bowlers. And I was like, well, rowers are the same thing. Like we get injured if we load too quickly. Um, we try to build kids up over time. So there was some natural synergies that started to sort of form in the conversations. And so for me, it was like, okay, how do I bring my rowing understanding without saying it has to be rowing. Um, but also how do I just keep opening up the conversation? And eventually one day our assistant coach down there said, you really know nothing about our sport, do you? And I said, cause I asked a really dumb question. And he said, but what, what we love about you drew is you're willing to ask those questions, which stops us and makes us think about why we do things. And so cricket like rowing, there's been a lot of things that they've done for generations without even thinking about it because the previous generation did it. So so the biggest solution that I, I remember um, being a part of was the marquee down in Tassie where I, I read a review and everyone had talked about winter conditions being a challenge and how disadvantaged Tassie players were. And I'd heard in this review that, you know, over in the UK, they used marquees on the wickets to help training happen. New Zealand were doing the same thing. It was like, why wouldn't we do that? You know, and I remember going to the CEO and saying, like, for us in rowing, like indoor training you know, and, and, and creating the similar sort of environment is like a no-brainer. And he was like, okay, well, how much is it going to cost? So eventually negotiating with the head coach to give away a pre-season camp and using that money to put a marquee on the, the, win the, the, the winter blocks out the back for the winter period and having the players turn around and go, this is just like training in summer. 
So, so for me, it was, I had to have my ears open, my eyes open and do a lot of learning. Then I had to look for those common points that I could actually help with that made sense, but then just to help them solve their big problems. And, and that's where I think that's what I was doing in rowing all the time. I'd sort of be sitting there as an athlete or in a crew going, what's our biggest problem right now? How do we solve that problem? You know? So if the problem was a particular disastrous result on the weekend, but it came down to a technical flaw or an inefficiency amongst the crew, how they match up. It's like, let's just fucking have the conversation, sort this out, you know, get over it. Now, if the other part was the equipment that we're using or the setup that we're using, if that was the big problem, how do we solve that? So, so I think when I went to cricket, I really had no idea how it was going to pan out, but I, I love working in the sport. I love the fact that I got to work with some amazing people, but I learned just as much. I mean, I learned so much about them and the sport, but I realized it wasn't cricket. It was actually just people trying to solve problems or get better at what they do. You know? That's the thing that's kind of coming out, you know, really strongly is, is the problem solving. And this is not just in sport, it's in business culture, it's in social culture, it's in general, you know, national cultures. We have, we have orthodoxies that we don't, we don't challenge because we, we've all, well, we've always done it this way, but if we, you know, if, if that was the way we'd still be debating whether or not to get down from the tree and bang two rocks together, if we didn't actually take <laughs> that kind of step in Britain, we have a, you know, mileage makes medals, mileage makes champions, but you know, it's rowing training is a grind and those who survive the grind are the, the ones who tend to win. And that, that is quite a rigid and quite a, you know, got to be locked in mindset but you're actually arguing for a very open very flexible willing to be challenged mindset and it's it's a bit of a pivot and i'm sure we're going to come back to your racing experiences but you part of that transparency and part of that problem solving and part of that that openness that you're describing you you were an early social media pioneer with the with the rudderfish blog <laughs> and the first question is you know do the Kiwi pair owe you a significant amount of beers? Because they definitely took that on. But was that blog part of that openness, sharing, flexibility? Let's let's find out what makes it go faster. What 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 works best? Yeah, definitely. Well, as um, I remember starting it, and I remember initially posting and feeling um, feeling comfortable with this philosophy, which was. The only way I thought I was going to get better was by sharing and by sharing others would share with me. Um, so the selfish motive was by putting it out there, the universe is going to hopefully you know, um, be reciprocal. The other thing that I think is it's a bit more altruistic that sits in me, which is I just want to see the sport get faster. I want to see other athletes get better. Um, I had an experience in 1999 at the world championships in um, St. Catharines where I remember vividly, walking out of the accommodation and, and it might have been the day before the final but there was a tree in this college that we stayed in. i remember sitting down and thinking to myself like it's not enough just to row and it's not enough just to get results yeah and so what dawned on me was i didn't want to be a part of a sport without helping it move forward right so so the writing my thoughts and putting stuff out there um yeah, was in a way, yeah, trying to trying to help everyone. Like, and, and but not not saying what we were doing was right either, because what I'd, I'd learnt from was sitting around the bar on a Thursday night at Mercantile Rowing Club, where coaches and athletes would share stories. Now, now we know some of those things get embellished quite dramatically sometimes, and sometimes less so. But but I learnt as an athlete on Thursday night by having a couple of beers and listening to what was being described and shared asking some questions, being engaged in a conversation. And I was like, 
well, how do I do that more broadly as an athlete, as I'm yeah, um, getting performances and results? Because I wasn't, I wasn't scared of people knowing what we were doing. Um, and then the cathartic process, I think, is also just the journaling. You know? So I was, I was happy just to get stuff out of my head and not edit it a whole lot, not read it back and all that sort of stuff, but just edit it out of my head and just go, I'll just post it and just sort of see what comes back. And sometimes it was my own crewmate, sometimes it was my coach, sometimes it was someone from overseas. And to this very day, I feel, um, I feel grateful for doing it because it helped me as an athlete perform better but it's helped i think a lot of people along the way not 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 to copy what we did but to just realize that there is another way to do it you can be transparent and competitive at the same time um and hamish and eric i think yeah i love eric sent me so much stuff over the years um and and i think what they appreciate was that i i was willing to disclose stuff with them share stuff with them i had no fear of you know what they were trying to do in the sport um but yeah it was that it was that bar room club culture of you learn from hearing stories. You learn from, you know, the journey that other people have been on. And so the blog for me was just an exploration of that. And, uh, you know, I still get, I still get people contacting me this very day, quoting stuff from it, you know, Ooh. about it since I found this online. It's just bizarre, you know. I, I just remember reading stuff on that going years back, you know, when I was first starting out in the sport, maybe 2004, 2005, and just thinking, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, my God, I'd have never have told anyone that if I'd worked that one out. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't remember whether, whether it was your, whether you wrote it or whether you recorded it, because I know you did like a lot of vlogs. Um, yeah, did a mixture, yeah. And I think you were saying sort of like, you were talking about kind of like the relaxed finish and the acceleration into the catch. And you're just saying, look, we've got the impeller data, we've got the GPS data, <laughs> we've got side-by-side -side data. And I'm like, my God, you just get, you just, just give it to the world, man. Why not? That's that's like, I mean, for, for, for a guy who at the time was like competing, that, that just seemed like a massively generous thing to do. Now, I've, I've kind of compared that to... If, if you, if, you know, we, we talked to Eric about this and it's fairly obvious from kind of the socials and the quotes you get from other people who spend time with them, but the GB squad is really, really tight lipped. They won't tell you yeah. what ergo they did this morning. And I've always kind of just thought about that, you know, with stuff like that, basic stuff, it's like you, you told people what your 5k score is, they can beat it or they can't beat it. But nobody's going to say, oh, I, I, that means I don't need to do any more training. Um, it, but it almost just seemed as though that you were, you were happy to say, you know, there's the book out there. Will it make the boat go faster? You were happy to say, this is how you make the boat go faster. Let, let's, let's just see what happens. <laughs> well, yeah, but the thing, so this is, this is you know, you, things come from frustration, right? And so imagine where the sport could be if there was more sharing, right? Just, just, just leave that as a statement. So I believe that um, to find competitive advantage and close the doors, damn right, you can be the best in the world. I mean, Jürgen Grobler is the best rowing coach that has ever lived on the planet of the earth ever. 
right? So that's a fact. And we let him go. We let him go oh, to France. <laughs> but but the benefit of letting him go too is that hopefully he'll help France get better and there'll be knowledge spread and all that sort of stuff. So while he was a GB, obviously very tight-lipped. And, and, and I do think a lot of what happened from outside looking in was Jürgen had his very specific way of going about things. And, and so the closed doors, closed ranks. But a lot of coaches do this. So I'm okay with that, but we have to evolve if we want the sport to survive, right? So here's the thing that I think of. Um, London Olympic Games, was it better that the race was within half a length or would it have been better if GB or we had a one by three lengths? So my answer is it was better that it was within half a length. Um, the Beijing Olympic Games, Duncan Frey and I were pushed by the Canadians pretty much all the way um, they led the race for such a long period of time. Now, was was rowing better that it was close like that? Damn right it was. You know, so and even for Hamish and Eric, I think the reason why they were happy to disclose stuff was because ultimately they wanted competitors to be able to step up and have a real crack at what they were doing. Now they still were going to try to dominate races, but here's my view: if rowing's not entertaining, People aren't going to watch, right? So yeah. I remember saying this to Duncan Free in three years leading up to Beijing, the first time we started talking about rowing a pair, we debated on a boat in Lucerne and his dad got this, right? His dad got an old rower, classic rower, Reg Free. And I turned to Dunks, I said, rowing's about entertainment. And he goes, nah, bullshit, it's about this and we've got to win and do all this sort of stuff. And it was a great conversation. And I said, mate, you don't get it. If you dominate every single time, eventually no one's going to be coming along to the regatta to see it. The Olympic Games is not interesting and all that sort of stuff. So... I think deep down inside me was like, well, I want to be a part of close races, but also want to see rowing be excited. I'd rather see the playing field get level, but also I don't want to see what, what might happen from that, which is it all gets the same and everyone's lining up more within a canvas. I want to see it get faster and also be highly competitive at the same time. So, so if some of the constituents of that system don't share or others aren't paying real attention when they see them at the regatta sites or listen to stuff. I mean, I, I found out stuff about GB rowing through bits and pieces, and then eventually you put a bit of a puzzle together. So Jürgen seemed to be volume-based, strength and power in the gym, power strokes on the water, lay off all the racing work for a long time. When you come to do it, you finally do it, and bang, they pop up, they go to altitude. There were some simple parameters that he went by. Yeah. Dick Tonks, on the other hand, was just volume, volume, volume. And when you did your interval work, you did a truckload of 500s or 250s as a way of building fatigue resistance. The Italians did lots of 1500s and lots of 15-minute pieces. So you can find this information out, but the thing for me is it's not just the physiological piece. It's the coach-athlete relationship. It's the mentality, what people go through. It's a bit of life history. Um, but if you don't have a few parts sharing, then it's hard for people to learn and hard for people to take the sport forward. So that, I think, was what drove that interest there. And it makes racing close, which is exciting. Yeah. I, I have to say, and we obviously come from the British culture, which which basically grew up on Redgrave going, we win because we win and that's why we win. And that was as much as you'd ever put in, you know, this taciturn <laughs> car from granite figure. That is incredibly generous because you're a set. I mean, Eric talked about his transparency being one of the weapons in, in their arsenal. And he, it was slightly tongue in cheek, but it's also, hey, look, this is what we've done. This is what we're doing. If you can beat it, then fair play to you. But this is what we're doing anyway. You, you know. Absolutely. And that's that's the key that right there. And I think if if I was to be, I'm not proud of, you know, I'm not the sort of person to sort of go, I'm proud of this and all that sort of stuff. But if I... There's something I do take a bit of a, a, a moment to reflect on is when I think it was Eric or Hamish messaged me and said, oh, 
you know, you've got to read our book. There's something in there for you. And, and that, that whole sort of thing of reading something or hearing something that I'd posted and then them going and trying and going, oh, this is it now. Do I honestly think that made them significantly better? No, I'm not egotistical like that. But I do love the fact they've taken something from another athlete and their journey and I was doing the same thing with the awesome foursome. And I was doing the same thing with anyone I could find out anything about in terms of the progress of athletes gone by. I mean, I'd watch the Abenali brothers, right? And I remember the first time I was in a training center in Varese and there was a picture of them and um, uh, one of the other scholars or whatever in the four and all that sort of stuff. And I'm looking at them and I'm going, I'm watching every single video going, what is it about how they rode the Cox pair that they made it work really well, yeah. And 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 you're watching it, and you sort of and then you get in the boat, and you sort of think to yourself, imagine if you're rowing a bit like them, and yeah. You know, but if you don't have that image or that footage, well, then you can't go and try it because you can't be inspired by it. So, so I think there's generosity everywhere. But I do like I do like the fact that those guys took something, tried something, evolved it so much better. I mean, what they said, I don't know if they ever said this to you guys or Eric said it, but they tried the finish check and the quarter slide check as a way to test the, the theory, the concept. And they paddled at the same rate, but paused at the finish, paused at quarter slide. And what they found was when they paused at the finish versus pausing at quarter slide at the same rate, they were going five seconds faster per 500. So, but this is a pair and a pause works and it's different in eights of different, different boats. But I, I like the fact that not only did they read something or hear something, and then they went and experimented with it and then became really confident and bold in how they were going to use it, which is what you want to see in the sport. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't want to blow smoke, but I I think you have every right to be proud of the Rudderfish blog. I, I I think it was a brilliant resource. I loved reading it, um, and you know, it's something I would just like dip into. It's like, you know, literally, I, I probably should have been working at the time, but it was just like <laughs> when you know you've got it going round and round in your head, and you're like trying to chase Henley and stuff like that. You're just like, how how do I get better? How do I get faster? And you know that that would be one of the things I just go back to and just have a look at. And what did he say from two years ago? And yeah, it was great. It it was a it was a fantastic research. In Lewin's case, certainly, and this is kind of a, a snippet of personal history. But I think your your curiosity and flexibility about the sport, Lewin, probably ran headfirst into that British culture of actually this is <laughs> this is how we do it. And you know, mentioning no names of or pack drill, we we rode for a club in Manchester called Agecroft, head coaches and president for life in the same way that we have a president for life in some South American countries, Dennis O'Neill, fantastic coach. <laughs> But he had his system that that worked, and you kind of fitted into that. And I think Lewin definitely butted up against that um, <laughs> on occasion. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would also say this was back in kind of scratch his head, something two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. That I wouldn't say that I was necessarily as qualified, and you know, I didn't have the experience. I hadn't done enough reading at that point. I think I'd been in the sport for five or six years not pushing 20 now but yeah i i was always just like saying yeah it's, it's that tell me why i'm doing this Ex explain why we're doing it like this not like this this feels more comfortable this makes it it feel like it's going faster um and i always wanted to have that conversation you know yeah we we were a club not not on uh, a professional sporting institute so there there is a limited amount of time you've got 
he was Scottish and I was from London. So, you know, <laughs> let's, let's face it. Um, he, he probably had better people to talk to. Um, so, and, and again, look, you know, like Jurgen, he was a bloody successful club coach. But yeah, I I really enjoy that idea of just like right, let's 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 have a chat about this. Let what can we do better? How we, how can we work out whether or not we're doing doing this better? Loon and I get the feeling that that um, you and you know even people like Matt and James, you you come from a, an era where athletes were almost expected to take ownership of their of their training and their approach to the sport and their output. In the way you've talked about it, the experimentation, the flexibility, the, the trying things out, the, the transparency. But we, we probably live now in an age where sporting programs have a structure and a system and there's a lot of money invested, and there's a lot of people invested and it's a lot of it's very, very medals driven, which we talked about with, with Eric and, and Andy when they, they came on. Would you say that it's become more prescriptive Oh, it, it certainly feels like um, it certainly feels like it is more prescriptive. That there's a there's a very clear recipe that certain coaches are using. What I would say is, and I'll give a, a, a linking analogy here to cycling. Sky cycling dominated the Tour of France for you know, five years, six years, whatever it might be. Everyone started describing that. Okay, that's the recipe. Today, Podjikar comes along. You know, UAE team, and he just races differently. And they're now talking about him like an Eddie Merckx who can win potentially one-day races, um, two grand tours, you know, other events that are just requiring different sort of skill sets. So, so I think, yes, it is prescriptive, but it's like that because people who have had success and dominated the sport, it's become obvious that you can't compete against them unless you're doing a lot of what they do um, and do it the same. But I reckon there's a breakthrough point. At some stage, something's going to happen, and it'll be a it'll be a smaller nation, or it'll be a, a newish coach, or whatever it is. But someone will do something where all of a sudden everyone go, bloody hell, how did they do that, right? So, and there are advances to be made in the sport. So we've we've pushed the physiology piece with the sports science for 30, 40 odd years, right? And, and it's paid massive dividends for the sport. Um, technically, we're always looking at things, but if you look at technically, there's probably about 10 different sort of models, you know, that, that are on a spectrum. So, so that's, that's been explored a fair bit. And, and, and I don't know, there's a lot of evidence for which one is better or worse and all that sort of stuff. I just think there's the very good athletes and the very good training and the technical thing is what they do. But I think when you look at the advancements, I think there's opportunity to go, what's the technique? What's the gearing? What's the training specificity that you want to do at what stage on their career? Um, what's happening in an event and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, and rowing will be pushed like this. So if rowing was asked to consolidate down to only um, 10 athletes or even eight athletes, eight men, eight women that go to Olympic Games, which events do you pick? How many events can you have? So, so when those parameters happen to the sport, then I think you'll see massive innovation because all of a sudden you'll see athletes who are doing double ups. You'll see all sorts of things starting to happen around the different kinds of rigs they might use if we have different distances. So there's a lot of things that I think could happen that would all of a sudden pop the sport back open again. Um, but right now, there's been a bit of a stranglehold. So prescriptive is a good word. What I would say is it's being governed by a certain set of rules that are physiologically based and science training based. Um, but it only takes a human individual or a coach to come along and do the Fosby flop, right? So then, so and, and Podjikar is doing that in cycling right now where others, Matthew Vanderplay and all that sort of stuff are 
they're, they're doing different things in the sport that are what being done in the sport. So people will rewrite the script and eventually some of the models that we're using in rowing will get broken apart and people will then look back and go, geez, remember how we did that sort of stuff? There was a real recipe there and eventually we'll go, actually, that's no longer the recipe anymore. Um, and, and, you know, the Italians are probably due, you know, for, for, for a renaissance period, right? So if you look at every country rolling on, you know, just imagine someone in Italy right now who's a coach and a bunch of athletes and they start to try different things, you know, very Italian-like with passion, all that sort of stuff. And before you know it, they're winning races and dominating, but popping out five seconds ahead of everyone. That would have everyone go, geez, okay, so this homogenized script and very detailed and planned out methodologically, you know, looks great, but all of a sudden you can't compete against that because they don't care about what you're doing. They're going to race in a different way. So it will open up. Um, and that's what I get excited by watching the races, just to see who, who rolls the dice, who does something different. Yeah. And the gearing, the oars, the blades, I mean, they've looked the same now. The make-on blade effectively in 1992 was crafted out of just a gut feel, that sort of shape works. We've adapted it ever so slightly, but if you compare us to kayak and we haven't really innovated it. So yeah. it's only going to take someone to go, what's the blade that really works for us? And what's the gearing that is so different? And, and all of a sudden you'll see that that has a physiological response on the athletes. Um, because I think our athletes have become gradually shorter. You know, if you think about the nineties, the athletes, I'd walk around the boat park and go, holy heck, look how big everyone is. By the time it was 2012, I'm walking around going, I feel like I'm one of the taller athletes. This is this is strange, you know. And the athletes have become shorter, but they become aerobic engines. And I think there'll be a breakthrough there in some way, you know. So, you know, that's what I'm sort of interested to see what happens. You you mentioned the the 2012 final um, earlier, and <laughs> and th this is I knew this was coming. This is not about to become an this, Aussie bashing session. It's, it's it, it absolutely really not because. It's genuinely, I mean, I look back, I mean, like you said, it was half a length. And um, I, I look back on that and I basically think that that was the single most accomplished performance by a British boat in an Olympic final, by a, a British four. And you were basically over 2000 meters you were like four meters away from winning i mean sort of is there anything that sort of like was there any weakness in in the british that when you look back you thought we could have exploited that but you wouldn't have known until you're running down the track Oh, there, there's definitely something I think if we had more time, I don't think we could have done a whole lot more with the time we had together with that crew, to be fair. I think we made a few mistakes, if I'm, you know, I can articulate is, I think our semi-final, when we were leading um, Hodgie and the guys, we knew that they were going to come hard to get through us to get the, the preferred position. I don't think we'd really tuned ourselves mentally to fighting for that lane position as much as what they had. And, and maybe that's because they'd rode on eating more or sending conditions more on sort of stuff. So we were aware of the conditions, but we weren't, I, I think we weren't taking that quite as seriously as we probably should have. And I think when the crowd noise came in, I, I noticed this sitting in the three seat was 500 metres to go. James Chapman behind me is making the calls. I couldn't hear him. And so while I've been in big races before, I, I, again, I didn't prepare myself enough for that because I was focused on some other things. And I certainly don't think I helped the younger guys in our crew to really anticipate what that was. So we adjusted for the final and I think we did a better job there. 
And the only other mistake I reckon that we made in the final was we just spun the wheels a little bit in the first 150, 200 metres. And so previously when we started, we'd get a better grip of the water and the boat had a lot more life where when you watch us start in the London final, you compare it to Munich final, you compare it to Lucerne final, all that sort of stuff. It just didn't look like it was quite as lively. Now, once we finally got grip of the water properly and we got the rate in our sweet spot, I think then we, we actually travelled really well for the rest of the course. But by giving away that canvas early um, that I don't think we should have given away, then all of a sudden it just put us under pressure. Now, we weren't a crew that was going to change a whole lot of speed down the track. If we had our time again and we had another year or six months or seven months together, I think we would have actually started then exploring what is it to counterpunch when when they're sprinting to the line because they were able to just do a really long build up all the way through so what i think we needed to do was to go if we're we're, we're level with them or if we've got a canvas or a canvas down if they're starting to move how do you counterpunch two or three times i don't think we were physically the sort of crew that could have just kept winding up through the gears that that wasn't our forte but i certainly think we could have jumped speed a few times better than what we ever but we never really we didn't work on that because we just didn't, we had seven months together as a crew. We didn't have sure. time um, from selection. So, and that's not a regret. It's just the games came around. Yeah. The time was the time. Um, we probably felt that on the year before when we were truly dominated and got third um, in bled to even get back and actually make a race of it, you know, felt really good for us. Um, we did some crew changes. We trained, we changed the way we trained a little bit as well. Um, and technically, by that stage, we were able to then execute better. So the, the four with James Chapman and Will Lockwood had a much more natural matchup. So it was easier to try some things technically. So there was no, what I thought the weakness of the GB crew was, to be, to be fair, was I, I, I thought that they wouldn't take the competition seriously until someone really started to race them and have a real crack at them. So... And I thought to myself, well, if they don't take us seriously, they race with just such freedom. You know, so what we needed to do was put a bit of pressure on them in the season and have them start to sort of guess and question themselves. But what I what I was really impressed by was how well they came out and dominated, I think, through the campaign in London. Um, but the chink in the armour for us was, I suppose, what we saw in Munich, which was, you know what, if we keep pressure on them for long enough in the race, they're not always going to be able to sprint yeah. and nail it together. You know, and so if you keep enough pressure on a, on a competitor for long enough and they're always expecting that it, it's just going to come together again and then finally it doesn't, you do that a few more times and all of a sudden there's more doubt that creeps in. Um, Tom James, I reckon, was just amazing. Um, Alex Gregory, obviously, um, really, like I've watched him for years. Jürgen got the seating right finally. Yeah, and Tom James being in the three seat and Alex being in the bow... For me, I love the way Alex rode, and I think he could have actually stroked the boat and all that sort of stuff. There's noted about that, but I think for dealing with the pressure for for the whole Olympic Games campaign, have Hodge and 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 Tom sitting in a pair. I mean, that was sublime. Like if you it's rowing differently, but just perfect matchup and, and leading the other guys. Yeah, you know, I would have just loved twelve more months of Adam. Yeah, you know, twelve more months of yeah, you know, two or three more races. I, I reckon it would have been fascinating to see how fast we could have made the fours go because I reckon. Yeah, thirty-five in really fast conditions might have been possible by those two fours pushing each other to go. That would have been pretty damn exciting, I reckon. Yeah. yeah, we've talked to Andy about it, and there and there are a few things that kind of come out of it. The the first is, and I haven't heard him say it anywhere else, 
he actually described the pressure of racing against you was essentially like racing against Redgrave. He said you you had that level of stature in the sport. You know, he personally felt he was racing against one of his his idols, and it was going to be incredibly tough. Uh, Loon and I looked at all of the we, we've looked at all of the British Coxless fours, you know, going back, and we put that as 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 the most accomplished row we'd seen because of the pressure of the home games, because of the quality of the uh, of the opposition, and it wasn't any one dramatic moment and and Hodge talks about his legs didn't during the warm-up his legs didn't stop shaking for the first 15 minutes because it was it was all on them the only other thing that he mentioned is like when he woke up and it was it was cold gray rainy and windy he went right British conditions this is on you know <laughs> you know we're used to this I wanted to I wanted to go to the beach <laughs> and I'm just wondering because if you kind of rewind and you cycle back through history when when Matt and James came out of the four and decided to stake a claim in the pair, they had they had fantastic success early on. They had that that season where they doubled up and and they won the two world championships and and they had that that fast time with a with you know what looked like a roaring tailwind when you 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 look back on it. But you actually had that period of having a crack at them, and then you know you, what happens happened, which eventually you know pushed them back to the four. Do you feel that 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 with the race being so close as it was in 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 London, with all of the you know, and Hodge has talked very you know freely about the 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 pressure and and what it's like racing you. If you'd had that extra time and you'd had that crack to go right, okay, well they're fast now and they're beating us, but I've got that in the memory banks that James and Matt were fast and we eventually came through. That that could have been something in the balance. I'm not suggesting yeah, yeah, yeah. that 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 you can take the gold away from them, but you would have liked no, more no, time. No, but, uh, yeah, for me, more time would have just, it would have given us the chance to continue to do our homework on what was going to work for us, first and foremost, because we were still finding things out. Um, and, you know, Will Lockwood and Josh in particular, I mean, it's their, it's their first games campaign. And the World Cups we had result-wise, while, you know, we lose Lucerne by half a length, three quarters of length, we win Munich by sort of similar sort of margin, because they were so contrasting at the way we rode it and the experience we had and all that sort of stuff, it was almost like the London games was, we were still learning. <laughs> so, I think, so, so I think you're right. I, I don't necessarily think that I, I look at go the James and, and Matt in the pair. My thing, I was surprised that they went out of the pair, right? So we only heard that, that story, you know, um, sometime between that last 12 month cycle where all of a sudden they chose to go out of it. And we only heard the story, you know, years later as to some of the assessment as to what Jürgen was doing there. But I didn't anticipate that that would ever happen in a four. I didn't expect it to happen in the pair. So, but I would have loved to have had them stayed in the pair. Yeah. I would have loved to have had the experience in Athens of having them a part of the field. Cause I reckon what they had happened in Milan wasn't true to character and true to form. Yeah. And if they had another 12 months, yeah, they would have had more of a Seville form. Yeah. And maybe in a different way. Um, and so for me, our, our four experiences, I reckon when you've got good athletes like Matt, James, the guys that have been there, like Hodgie, Steve, all the same thing, like you knock us over once or twice, you know, we're going to keep at it. Like we're just not going to give up and just lay down. So so for me, my comment about time, just deep down inside, I go, I, I know I would have made the racing even more competitive, you know, and I would have made myself better and I would have helped my crew be better. So, so 
that for me is always in there. Um, but that's the unusual sense of optimism, which is you wake up tomorrow morning, doesn't matter what the result is, and you just think you can go faster, right? So yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a wiring thing that um, doesn't matter how many times I've been beaten, it never, never gets knocked out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a rowing thing. Actually, um, and just to pivot again, I mean, we're, we, we are pivoting like professional Latin tango dancers at this point on this podcast, but this is kind of where we came in because... A few weeks ago, I, I threw up as a joke, you know, this pausing at backstops bollocks is still a thing, is it? Because one of our coaches down <laughs> at, at, at Tyne was, was, you know, was getting us to do it. Now, I've always done pause rowing as part of, um, I've done it as a drill. I've done, you know, so you do you, you do pause rowing drills. I think it's, it's incredibly um, useful. I've rowed in a GB style. I've rowed in a Dennis O'Neill style. We had Pete Holmes as a coach for a while at Agecroft, the brother of Andy Holmes, the late Andy Holmes, fantastic coach. But he rode in a kind of a Fairburn-esque Spracklin style, so very dynamic front end and sitting very far back. So I'm willing to try all of these things. And I put this post up as a, as a joke because we didn't have a podcast going out. And all of a sudden these replies you have to pause it's the only way it's 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 the path of the true believer pausing is rubbish it's nonsense there's no data to support it well the physics says this and that's essentially how we eventually got back in touch with you and and you you came on talk us through the idea of the pause at the back because it's become such a thing in british club rowing now and it's obviously it's felt it's also done in in the paddling pieces in in our kind of national squad but um, so talk us about your, and I'm thinking specifically when you race Matt and James, Matt, you know, Matthew is obviously one of the icons of the sport, but it, it's a very brutal, they were almost punching it through the water. And we were very aware at the time that Australia had this, um, this perception that you had this long, loose languid and you were really sitting back and letting it run as opposed to this, this very dynamic punch. Talk us through the pause. Yeah, probably. So let me clarify something. I don't think I've ever said stop at the back ever in my life. Um, that's the first part. Um, but what I have said is be very deliberate with holding and pressing and finishing the stroke off and, and handle speed in should equal handle speed away. Now, I've watched lots of rate 19 paddling, which is not going particularly fast for crews. And as a result, they create a false rhythm by forcing their hands and rocking over. And, and I get the con concept of doing it and getting people out of trouble and getting them well set and sequenced. But I don't mind it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't bother me whichever way you go. What, what my experience was, was when I watched the awesome foursome videos from 1990, training on the Yarra. Now, Noel Donaldson had an archive of footage. So I was living in his house for a period of time and I used to just pop in tapes all the time and all world rowing championship tapes. And there was training videos of the four. And I, I loved watching James Tompkins. And it was almost like place, hang, hips. But the hands would actually move like this, but just nothing else would move. And all of a sudden it'd go. You watch this sort of stuff and you go, okay, so James is six foot six. So he's got natural levers. He's not rushing the release. It's giving all the guys behind him time. And I'm watching these videos going, this just looks artful. Like it looks really graceful. So, so we tuned something up in me as to, well, that's the way I like the look of rowing. And James used to have this old swing to the inside of the rigger, right? So, and, and you'd watch it. And so I'd find myself rowing in pairs and just like the idea of just that look and feel and all that sort of stuff. And I'm a similar sort of build. So 
And then by the time I got to row with the guys in the four and, and the Macon blades versus the cleaver blade change uh, that they'd gone through, I'd rode with Macon's at school. And they used to always talk about, you've got to really get hold of the water properly with the Macon blade. And you've really got to hold the blade under the water properly. So I reckon there was an element of you, you, you're sort of holding and pressing and really feeling for it. And all of a sudden it's out of the water and it's like, yep, that's been really deliberate and timed well. And, and then you sort of let the hands flow and then you sort of go, okay, you can feel the boat sort of coming and just let it roll and catch. So it was a feeling that, that made sense based on the visual that I'd seen of a guy that I believed in and the four in particular, you know, one of the best fours at the time and all that sort of stuff. It was like, well, if they're the best and everyone talks about them being these technical things and when I row, that feeling makes sense, just keep exploring it. Now, I'd, I'd, I'd plenty of times rode on camps where I'd spin my hands for the coach and the crew, get myself over, get set early. Um, so I, I, as an athlete, I've, I've done the gamut of all those things. We've tried to row like Canadians, big sit back. Interesting, Spracklin's comment at a FISA conference wasn't that they were trying to sit back, was they were trying to hold on for longer hold the blade in the water for longer. So, but if you look at that, even their 2008 crew, Stern 5, amazing head stillness at the release, amazing body stillness at the release. Now, the guys that are further back in the bow three, like they've got a bit of work to do to calm forward, so it's a bit more aggressive in the movement. But if you look at Stern 5, you go, you know what, they are holding and pressing, and the hands are going away really quickly because they're moving fast. But they're calm in their heads and their body. So... Yeah, we did a lot of training where you'd have the GPSs on the boat, you know, coaches asking for certain things and you're looking down, you're going, that's interesting. Like the coaches ask for this and it feels like it's slower or even heavier. And then you'd continue off on the course and the coach wouldn't be there and you'd sort of just play around with a few things. And it was all, a lot of us was delayed feather was the drill we really liked and press and hold and just feel calm and then just roll and catch. And you go three or four seconds quicker and you go not only three or four seconds quicker, it actually feel easier. So I've never said everyone should do it. What I have said is people should always explore and experiment with what's going to work for them. I never liked full stop at the finish, but equally I don't like the crashing into the front or the pausing over the toes. Cause that just, that rubs me the wrong way completely. So what I like is a balanced stroke. And if you think about um, swing, there's a certain speed of momentum in a swing. So when you're at the top of the swing here, you can't rush that. You can't all of a sudden be halfway forward on the swing. So there's a certain momentum, right? So rowing's the same. So why would we force the movement on the swing to be back to a point before it's due? Equally, when we've got the other end of the stroke, why would we force that? So, so there's a swing. And if you watch trampolining, it's the same thing. It's like there's momentum and mass. So here's what I think works. Body mass, center of mass, total system weight momentum going down the course it doesn't matter a whole lot what some people are doing as long as that mass is moving and you're not interrupting the mass moving forward so we have all these nuances about rowing but my, my thing is when you watch people who are moving really fast my head dry style the pair um the germinate all these sort of things you, you look at them and you go that idea of the seat slowing down into the catch slowing down to the catch to really be really well set never happens in racing there's no bit of footage you can show me at 37 strokes a minute where anyone's ever doing that. And in fact, the best crews are always trampolining in, right? So when you watch it and you go, well, why would we train ourselves and coach ourselves to do something different to that? So the pause is taking time somewhere in the stroke, I suppose, to then set up the sequence really well. And for me as an athlete, it just felt like I was sitting in the bow seat 
if I rushed forward, I'd get ahead of the stroke person and find that I was vulnerable. But if I just held behind them and stayed behind them and let them lead me, all of a sudden I felt like I had control of the platform. And also it meant that I wasn't loading them on the first part of the recovery. So there was a lot of experiences as well as visual cues. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't mind watching crews do all sorts of things. I, I don't mind seeing them. And I always say to people, that my, like the New Zealand eight, yeah, Hamish, I think I saw in an article where he described that when he was down the stern, he was trying to get everyone to row like him almost, and it wasn't working for the eight. He goes back into the two seat and they talked about doing their big boy rhythm, you know, which yeah. was just more time to clamp the water, hold the water and move the boat and not sort of trying to row the same sort of um, sustainable rhythm that he was rowing in the pair. It had to be a bit more brutal, which is Canadians, Americans, all that sort of stuff in the eight. So, so different boats need different things, different athletes need different things. But I do think that often blindly just going technically do this and it'll make you fast is flawed, right? So, and a good coach that thinks about it and studies it and works on it should always be open to the idea of going, hey, look, I'm going to work with my athlete or my crew to work out what's really going to work for them. Um, yeah, but teaching everyone just to do this, just because we always have, that, that, that just frustrates me. I mean, you said it before. Yeah, ask the question why. Um, it has to make sense to me if I'm going to do it, that's for sure. That was my takeaway from it, which, which is that we get very hung up on numbers in rowing. We get very hung up on things like splits and 2K times and power outputs. And we talk about technique like it's this cold clinical thing. But when you're in a boat, what you're looking for is the feeling of how you move the boat the most efficiently. Playing around with that is really is really important. I mean, one of the best things I've ever done as a rower in terms of, of teaching me how to move a boat was that I sculled the length of the Thames with a, a group of friends. And, you know, we threw our kit bags in the in, in the buoyancy holes where they shouldn't have gone, so we, we probably weren't street legal. <laughs> but after 150 miles of sculling the length of the Thames, you weren't actually thinking about anything. You were just thinking about the best way to move the boat, and it became perfectly natural. The feel of the boat tells you what to do. But sometimes you have to get away from training and splits and power outputs and this race and that race and, you know, slap catches and pausing at the back and just go and row for a long period of time until you find what works. Rowing is the best technical drill you'll ever do, right? Yeah. The actual, <laughs> the, the actual full rowing stroke is the best technical drill you'll ever so do. So yeah. James, James, James Tompkins said this in 2004, so two, three, and four, we pretty much had one drill, delayed feather. Right. The only other thing we would do is we obviously, like everyone, is work through the sequences, but we do a lot of quarter slide, half slide rowing. And the reason why we liked that was it just made us feel like we had a lot more time. We didn't have to force ourselves into um, tight positions out front. So a delayed feather was just the emphasis of just really sending the boat away, letting it move, letting it row. But what you've just said there is exactly right. As an athlete in the middle of a race, the only thing I've ever, ever really remembered feeling uh, thinking about or feeling for is just what's that sensory thing that's coming through, you know? So I, I don't, I can't row hard hundred percent every single stroke for 2000 meters. No one can, it's physically impossible. But what I can do is find the equilibrium between my effort, my fatigue, um, what feels like it's an efficient thing. And so this was the insight that I remember having in um, the pair with Mike Mackay in about, oh, I'm going to say this 1997, I think it was, I'm sitting in the stroke seat. I'm nowhere near as strong as him, right? He was a much stronger athlete. Like I was doing 6.02, six minute on the ergo. His best was low 50s, maybe even under 50. He's 95 kilograms, I'm 85 kilograms. I'm sitting in the stroke set. I'm going, I can't, I, can't, I can't beat him at that game. But I remember coming out of the start in one of our first races and just going, okay, just put in the water and bump shove. 
but don't like let my hips go completely. Just bum shove, keep it loose, keep it loose, keep it loose. And all of a sudden the boat's going straight and I'm looking and going, we're now a length in front of the field. And I'm going, I don't feel like I'm actually rowing very hard here. And it's just feel, feel, keep sliding the hips, sliding the hips. And all of a sudden I get to the end of the race and I'm going, that was easy. So when you have an experience like that, that goes counter to some of the things you've been taught and told, which is rowing is hard and you've got to really haul on it and all that sort of stuff. It's like, far out. Actually, maybe I can do something in this sport long-term because I don't need to just play the physicality game. Um, so what I can feel in the boat, the coach can't feel, right? So that's where communication comes in. It's really important. But what, for me, the coach has as an advantage is they can see the stuff that we can't see, right? So the, the cues of distance and space moving together and all sorts of stuff is really good. But I think we have become all very obsessed with the numbers. And, you know, for years I've watched athletes look down at the GPSs and watch and paddle on speeds, but they're not really thinking about how well they can do it or can they do it a bit easier and all that sort of stuff. Lyle McCarthy said this about Kim Brennan um, in the single skull, which is his philosophy is like, well, why don't you just sit on that speed and see how easy you can now do it? You know, do less and less and less and less, you know, and that's a feeling like that. And then, then, then you get confidence in going, I'm doing 205 in a single scale or two minutes in a single scale or whatever the split might be. And you go, but yeah, heart rate tells me I'm doing it easy, but actually feeling, I can actually feel the loads easy and I'm finding a sweetness to it all. Now, harder to do in big boats, I know, but certainly it should be something that's encouraged in the sport. That's for sure. Now, guys, um, sorry, I'm going to have to take the kids to uh, climbing in about um, <laughs> 20 minutes. So uh, we probably need to kind of like move to the end of it. Um, really wanted to ask is like, where, where is rowing going sort of right now in Australia? What, what, how is it coming up from the bottom? Oh, look, I'm not, I'm not close enough to the, to the elite end, like in terms of the coaching programs and all that sort of stuff. I do know that our pathway, I think is, um, continuing to function better and better in Australia. And I think the schools generally, um, do a great job. They're developing a lot of kids. There is a dropout rate from school to, to club. So, and I know clubs are trying to connect better. And I think if we do that better, then, you know, things are pretty good. There's a lot of talented young kids. I mean, I've just been up the nationals and just watching some of the social media stuff, like the smiles on kids' yeah, faces yeah. to have a regatta on that was canceled and moved from Sydney um, to see some of the performances. Um, but what I do hear a bit about from some schools and some perspectives on some schools is, that they make it very serious. And so sometimes kids get to the end of their school run and go, that's it for me in the sport. So, so I think there's a real balance between how far do you push them in school versus not. Um, I think the pathway, we've got an under 21 level that makes a, a lot of sense now, helps the under 23 progression. Um, it means that kids can stay out of the centres for a little bit longer before they have to re-engage or connect into the centres as an older athlete. I'm not saying old athlete, but um, generally they're not getting scholarships at a very young age uh, as much. I think what's going to happen now is I think, you know, and I don't know enough about John Keogh's program, but yeah, you know, he's, he's obviously got to make sure he's got the right athletes there in, in Penrith and in Sydney. And, you know, it'd be really interesting to see how he's going to build on that. It doesn't quite look like they've got as many numbers right now um, of the athletes they had in Tokyo. That's, that's pretty obvious on, on paper. Um, but I'm hearing the athletes they've been gone through a selection have gone really well. And, and the senior athletes for the guys, I think it's the same thing. It's a bit of a rebuilding phase. I think we need to take a longer term perspective is probably what I'm hearing in the sport. They're realizing that you can't probably have athletes that are feeling burnt out by the sport and the activities and the way they've gone about it and expect that they're going to get past one or two Olympic cycles. So I think there's a bit of a rethink going on there. 
Um, and more broadly to your question, where does the sport go? I think I love 2K racing personally, but I also love river racing and I love match racing and I like the idea of sprint racing. Coastal racing, I'm really fascinated by that, but I do think they need to get out on a, a proper coastline where there's real ocean and swell right? <laughs> versus some of these, <laughs> these, these small coastal rowing because surfboat rowing, the Aussie titles in, in, in uh, Queensland right now, they'd be punching out through eight-foot surf, right? So that's that for me is coastal rowing, right? So rowing is trying to say it's doing coastal rowing, but it's not really do, – it's doing a bit of rough yeah. water rowing. But I like the fact that we've got a bit more diversity coming in, um, but I do think the sport seriously needs to – and I'm sure they are, but what's the plan for pressure on numbers of athletes at the Olympic Games, right? So we just can't think, we can't wait for it to happen to us. We've got to come up with better solutions. Now, what I'd like to see is athletes where you've got um, three opportunities, four opportunities for four gold medals because that would change the rowing dynamic massively where all of a sudden Steve Redgrave comes home from Sydney fifth Olympic gold in a row, but he's won four Olympic golds at one games, right? So that takes it to a whole nother level, like some yeah. of the swimming sports and some of the other discipline sports. So I think rowing just needs to wake up and go, stop thinking one gold medal is good enough when you've got an athlete in swimming or athletics can win five or six. And yeah, they, they eclipse everyone where it's not, they're a better athlete. It's just, they just get better opportunities. So, and I think you can do that in rowing, even with 10 men and 10 women with those opportunities and mixed boats. So um, and the only other thing I'm excited by is just seeing some of the innovations that might happen in the sport. I think we've got to get some boffins back involved and some crazy scientists who hydrofoils. Uh, oh yeah, but wouldn't that be cool to see? Like just get a boat up I on just, plane I just and go, think it's brilliant. Fifty k an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, literally getting to the point where rowers need helmets. It's just like yeah, imagine I love that. It. Yeah, and they put you on a course that's 10K long and it takes you three minutes, you know. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So, I mean... Is there, is there anything else that you would like us to flag up or, 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 or put on, on the Twitter stream that you'd like to draw attention to? Any work that you're doing, either personally, professionally, or with, with uh, charities or anything like that? Oh, look, there's probably a, a personal one just about finding a cure for cancer. Um, I've lost both parents due to cancer. So I do a lot of work with Tour de Cure here in Australia. Um, and I think anything, anything anyone can do to, to help that in their own environments um, is pretty important. And, and the only other one is, yeah, just the notion of, you know, sharing and, and helping people in the sport. You know, I think, um, yeah, I, I love the sport. I love the opportunities in the sport. I love what the sport's given me, but also I, I like the stories and their history. And, you know, I think the sport can do more to open itself up to, engaging differently and, and sharing differently that it actually, um, you know, wouldn't it be good to see more of the population of the world, you know, made feel welcome in the sport of rowing and, and having opportunities, but then you also need to be able to share IP and knowledge and all that sort of stuff along the way. So I think we've made efforts in that area, but I reckon we can do better. That's for sure. Cool. Drew, it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, I reckon I could have asked you questions for another three hours. Um, thank you <laughs> yeah. so much for your time um it's oh, yeah. been great to chat and and can i just add exactly the same drew i mean they do say never meet your heroes i've just met one of mine and they are talking absolute bollocks you're a scholar and a gentleman fantastic <laughs> thanks guys